0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Olorunipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling in The Post.
1: This is Peter Jamison from The Washington Post. This is
0: Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, July 10th. Today, how the federal government is using facial recognition software, a dispatch from the campaign trail in Iowa and an attempt to ban the Beijing Bikini.
1: Facial recognition is one of the most powerful surveillance technologies of the 21st century.
0: Drew Harwell covers artificial intelligence for The Post.
1: We've known it has been used by law enforcement and federal agents to help chase people down, pursue criminal investigations. But we've never really gotten a good sense of where they get those search photos from in the first place.
0: Some of those photos come from local and state police records so that the federal government could search for a match of someone's face in jail mugshots.
1: But there wasn't a real understanding that they were actually tapping into these state DMV databases as well. And that is a huge get for them because these are millions of photos of people looking straight into the camera with great light. I mean, pretty much everybody has a driver's license, so it's really comprehensive. And um, so we, we had a sense that this was something that the agents would want to tap into, but we didn't understand the scale at which they were using it and deploying it to chase people down. So how did we learn about all of this? There are some researchers at Georgetown Center for Privacy and Technology who have been doing these rolling FOIA and public records requests to try and map out just how big of a deal these searches were. And over the last couple of years, they've been getting these responses back from states like Utah and Vermont and Washington State that have laid out in really kind of surprising detail how close that relationship has become between agents at ICE, And the FBI and other agencies, and officials at state DMVs who help them run the searches, sort of run the driver's license databases, and help those agents make the connections they need based off of these face scans of of people who never knew that the scans were being done.
0: And so this is literally like agents from the FBI and from ICE who just email people from DMVs in states around the country and say, "Hey, can we?" Cross-reference our photo with your set of photos, and then it just goes from there.
1: Yeah, and in some cases, there will be an official document, like a court order or a subpoena saying, we need this DMV to run these records for us as part of this investigation. We've laid out what we need. But in some cases, you know, that we saw, it was just like a tiny email. It was an agent from ICE saying, we're looking for this person who was charged with something like a visa overstay. And they would include what they call a probe photo, which is the photo they're searching for. And they would send it over to the state DMV official and the DMV official would put that photo into their local DMV search and return whether there were no candidates found or whether there was a possible match. And so in that way, the ICE agents didn't have full access to that database, but they could search it pretty much whenever they wanted. And you could see the rapport build up between the state DMV officials and the federal agents to where, you know, these searches were happening all the time, sometimes dozens of searches a day.
0: Is this legal? And did state officials, state legislatures ever formally say, okay, the FBI and ICE and other federal agencies can use these driver's license databases for their own purposes?
1: No, and I think that's a big problem. In a lot of these states where we've seen this happening, the local lawmakers have never passed any kind of authorization for federal agents to use that data. And often... These lawmakers have pushed back against that idea of, like, contributing to this national registry of of Americans' identities or even just giving that sort of access. You know, you think about some of the fights over sanctuary cities and how states want to contribute to some of these federal investigative efforts. So we're at a point now where the talk about facial recognition regulation is – At an all-time high. And it's really interesting because it's one of those rare topics in Washington where both Republicans and Democrats seem to agree. Representative Elijah Cummings had a lot of interesting points about how this technology can be misused and how there's been really little government oversight. Facial recognition is a fascinating technology with huge potential to affect a number of different applications. But right now, it is virtually unregulated. And Congressman Jim Jordan, who's the ranking Republican on the committee, he also sort of felt like this was a system that the FBI had pushed with, you know, zero lawmaker approval and that it was scanning people's faces without really anybody knowing. The individual didn't get permission. Were there any kind of notification at the time they go in to get their picture and get their driver's license? Oh, with my four years, I got to get my, my, my new tag my, or my new uh, license. Any type of information given to them? Oh, by the way, this may go to the FBI. What would typically happen is the FBI and the local DMV would sign these handshake agreements saying, you know, we can come to you when we have these requests and we'll give you certain pieces of information and we'll just sort of go from there. There are these memorandums of understanding, but they weren't really deals signed by any, you know— any voters or any voter supported, you know, elected officials
0: and the people who get their picture taken for the driver's license, they're not notified that now their picture can be used for federal law enforcement purposes.
1: Yeah, when you go to the DMV and get a driver's license, you're not expecting that photo to be used in a facial recognition scan. You know, when we think about these quote-unquote biometric databases, which is just, you know, stuff from your body that that agents can use, like like your fingerprint or your iris or whatever. Um, you know, agents have these databases of those things like fingerprints, but they typically come from people have been arrested. They they come in. There may be suspects in a crime or something. It's a limited database, but with DMV records, that's pretty much everybody. I mean, that's you know, hundreds of millions of people across the country, and none of them really ever consented to these scans being done. No, none of them ever knew when they were being scanned.
0: So from this new information, do we know how often this happens? How many searches have been done of state and local databases by federal officials?
1: Yeah, the FBI alone says it has done over 300,000 searches of federal, state, and local databases since 2011. And that's all facial recognition searches. That's not just state DMVs, but a lot of different databases. And we know from these records, you know, like in, in Utah, there were thousands of searches between just 2015 and 2017. And ICE and the FBI were more than 1,000 of those. So we know it's happening a lot.
0: Do we know if ICE has used some of these searches to actually identify people to be deported?
1: That's where the questions are getting more intense because ICE isn't really telling us anything about how they're using the search besides that they're doing it the right way. But we can tell from some of these ICE facial recognition search requests that some of the crimes were stuff like overstaying a visa or passport fraud, these sort of low-level crimes that could you know, be part of ICE's mission to find and deport undocumented immigrants. And one big part of what the researchers found was that some of these searches were being done in states where undocumented immigrants can legally drive. They can either get a full driver's license or they can get what's called a driver privilege card, which is like a more limited license. So their feeling was that you know, these immigrants are told to come to the DMV. We'll give you this card. You can get auto insurance. We can test your ability to drive. You can drive legally and not worry about it. And these researchers feel like this was a bait and switch because these immigrants had anxiety about contributing their face to a database probably in the first place, right? And yet they were never told that these these scans were being used in this way. So we don't know how many deportations or how many immigration actions have, have come out of these databases. But we do know they're looking, right? We do know that ICE is interested in these records. And we've seen from all of the stuff that's happening at, at the border and in Washington and across the country how much immigration enforcement has become a priority of this administration. So it's it's easy to sort of connect the dots and, and see how they could kind of use this power to deport people.
0: And the fact that the federal government is using these state and local databases without the permission, without the explicit permission of lawmakers, of governors in these states. It really feels like one of those do it first, ask permission later kind of situations. Not dissimilar from what a lot of tech companies have done with a lot of sort of questionable tactics, or, or like I'm thinking about when. Uber first started to be on the roads and it wasn't quite legal, but then they just kept doing it until everyone sort of accepted it. And I wonder if that's the tactic here, where if the federal government starts using it, even though some people are very seriously concerned about it, that eventually it'll just become so normalized that people will be like, well, I guess this is just what it is now, that of course the federal government can use any driver's license photo in the country for their own purposes.
1: Yeah, there's definitely, like you said, a slippery slope problem. And from talking with some of the police and federal supporters of this technology, they feel like facial recognition is in people's phones. It's an available technology. It can help us out. This is something that could help us find bad people and prevent crime. So we don't have the patience to wait for this to gain approval. We don't want to shelve this technology that could potentially save lives. But there is a huge worry that they could go overboard. Once you have the ability to scan state DMV records, what's to stop you from scanning all passports or all Facebook accounts or all college yearbooks? The challenge is not a technical one for these people. I mean, the technology is really easily available. It's just can they deploy it in a way where Either they can get approval from lawmakers or can they do it in such a sort of secretive way that they won't encounter resistance in the first place. And so that's a worry from privacy advocates. Do we want to live in a society that is a surveillance state where people can be identified from afar without their consent at any time? So, you know, we're taking this inaccurate technology and we're applying it to criminal justice. You were sending, you know police and immigration officials at people based off of a photo that was maybe taken by a blurry camera. There's all these real legal and moral concerns over how it could be used and misused. So for the police side, I I get why they want to deploy this so quickly, but they're doing it without sort of regulatory guidance. They're doing it without really any clear cut rules. And, you know, the, the worry is that that could lead to real harm.
0: Drew Harwell is a tech reporter for The Washington Post. Today on Capitol Hill, there was another congressional hearing on facial recognition technology.
2: One can only imagine what Mr. J. Edgar Hoover would have done with this technology. It was Mr. Hoover who surveilled Dr. King.
0: Representative Al Green of Texas said that he's concerned about the implications of using this
2: technology. It's my job to make sure that this kind of technology is not abused.
3: I'm Dave Weigel. I'm a political correspondent for The Post, and I write the trailer newsletter three times a week.
0: They said health care is a human right. You know who that person was? This past weekend, Dave was in Iowa covering the campaign. And he was looking specifically at this new tactic that Senator Bernie Sanders' campaign is employing. A tactic that they argue will be a game changer for the Iowa caucus.
3: We're at the point of the campaign where people have actually hired, they've built teams, they are in the field, they're not just showing up and saying, hey, this seems interesting, maybe I'll run for president. I guess unless you're Tom Steyer. And so I wanted to see what Bernie Sanders' organizing looked like on the ground.
0: (laughs) How about you know, when I came to Iowa, and I've said this before and I want to say it again,
1: Iowa obviously plays a oversized role in the American political process.
3: Iowa's vital I, because there are twenty something candidates depending on the day. It is unheard of for somebody who places worse than second or third place in Iowa to win the Democratic nomination. The last few cycles the people who have won Iowa have gone on to win it. So what they're going to do is spend a ton of time organizing in this state with gigantic staffs. And then the night Iowa's done, those people are going to fan out around the country. They're not going to have as much time to organize anywhere as they will in Iowa, but it doesn't matter. For a number of these candidates, if Elizabeth Warren were to win Iowa, if Bernie Sanders were to win Iowa, if Kamala Harris was to win Iowa, if Joe Biden was, that completely changes the shape of the race. And so for most of the campaigns, it's do or die. I, I think more than half of the campaigns will have to drop out if they don't place very high in Iowa.
0: Once we get to the parade, we'll march in the parade with Bernie Sanders here,
3: okay? The way that they're all campaigning right now is, is frankly, making themselves visible every week to Iowans. So they are doing a lot of repeat trips. This week, a, a number of candidates marched in parades. Joe Biden marched in one, Bernie Sanders marched in five. I should say, jog. They run around to people and shake their hands. At this parade in Windsor Heights on 4th of July, I followed behind Sanders because there was this phalanx of supporters going to everyone who had waved at him, basically, or taken a sticker or a sign, running up to them and getting their information to contact them later, which, believe it or not, is actually kind of a new thing.
0: This is inside baseball stuff. But what Sanders' campaign is doing is actually pretty different. Because usually, campaigns in Iowa meticulously track the number of likely voters. There's a whole numbering system that they use from one to five. And the goal is to get as many ones and twos as possible. People who say that they're confident they will come out and vote for that candidate. But instead, the Sanders campaign is hyper-focused on tracking the number of their volunteers because they argue that volunteers, more than campaign staffers, are more likely to be able to find the people in their communities who don't usually vote at all, people who wouldn't be on established lists of likely Democratic voters. Now, Bernie Sanders can only do so much of this himself. We need to reach millions of people to win this race. So we need everyone in this room to get out there and connect with the other people in our community.
3: Most campaigns have a target of how many people might caucus in the tens of thousands. And their work is holding events, identifying people who they can then contact and turn out for the caucuses. Or if they're really interested in the campaign, become volunteers. And the Sanders campaign is doing that, too. The addition that they have is what they call distributed organizing, which is events where they people show up.
0: I need everybody here to volunteer.
3: It's kind of fun. You get revved up and you, it's almost like an auction.
2: Who can do nine shifts?
3: Who wants to canvas seven times? Who wants to canvas six times? Who wants to canvas five? You wait for the hands to go up.
0: All right, last call, one shift. If you can volunteer for just one shift, give it a try, see what it's like.
3: The idea being that if you get people extremely invested in the campaign, they're going to be a volunteer for life.
0: So the idea is basically that he's focusing on rather than looking at the pool of people who are likely to vote and Mm -hmm. trying to convince them to vote for him, he's trying to find all the people who usually don't vote at all.
3: Yeah. This is a Sanders theory that honestly he didn't invent it. This has been a theory on the left for a very long time that if voting becomes easier, most people who are too busy to register, they would be populist Democratic voters, they know they see the data that if you just get those people who think that every politician is the same and no one ever delivers for me and no one talks to me, if you get 10 percent of them to turn out, that is enough to change the electorate.
0: And this tactic that he has or this idea that his campaign has, do you think that's going to make a difference in the end?
3: Oh, I can't predict what kind of difference it'll make. It's just it's something that's new. (laughs) There's so much despite the multiplicity of candidates. There's not a lot that's new in terms of tactics. Sanders is not the only campaign that is innovating, but it is the one innovating in a way in the context where a lot of people have been writing them off. And any story that's focused on polling suggests that Sanders favorability has been sloughing a little bit. A lot of his voters who thought he was the best choice or best protest candidate in 2016 have moved on to other people. So I wanted to focus on his organizing because otherwise the conversation about Sanders is why isn't he doing that well? The campaign knows he's not doing that well right now. It's hard as a repeat candidate, Hillary Clinton discovered this It's hard for people to stay interested, there's not a news story If there's anything new, it's about why you're not catching on like people thought you might And so for the last month, Sanders has been talking about his ability to beat Donald Trump How democratic socialism, if he explains it, is not a loser How single-payer healthcare, if he explains it, is a political winner He's been doing all this and democratic voters are not convinced of it The polling we've seen has shown most Democrats still think Joe Biden's the most electable candidate. But as that number has been declining, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris have been increasing. So the Sanders strategy has been at some point, this is them thinking Biden, because he's not a great candidate, he's going to make mistakes and people will turn to this campaign, which has by far the biggest organization what this told me about who might win it didn't give me an insight into what's going to happen in six months it confirmed that people are still extremely frantic and trying to make up their minds it also emphasized people are really kind of irritated with how many candidates there are and you have started to see people Maybe they'll be polite to the candidate who shows up and ask them questions and keep them on their list. And sometimes they'll just literally say, why are they doing this? It's too hard to keep track of these candidates. And I've already just limited it down to three or four people.
0: Dave Weigel is a political reporter for The Post. If you want to read more of his coverage of the presidential campaign, you should check out his newsletter called The Trailer. We've got a link to it online at postreports.com. And now one more thing from Beijing bureau chief Anna Fifield about the annual arrival of a fashion faux pas.
2: The Beijing bikini is the name for this fashion amongst men in China, usually middle-aged or older men, where they roll or pull up their shirts or their t-shirts when it gets hot to try to kind of often rest their shirt on top of their belly so they walk around with their midriffs exposed. When I see the Beijing bikinis are out, then I know that summer has officially arrived. The idea of this is that your stomach area, your internal organs, that is where the heat, the warmth in your body is held. This is according to traditional Chinese medicine. So by exposing this area and letting it air out, the idea is that it's going to help the heat to escape. And this is a very common practice. You see it everywhere in China when it's hot men sitting on street corners, playing cards, walking through parks, you know, sitting outside restaurants, everybody uh, is wearing a Beijing bikini, has their belly exposed to try just to cool off a bit in the humidity. Funnily enough, uh, even though all people supposedly carry warmth in their stomachs, this is really only uh, men who do this. So a bunch of cities in China have now started trying to regulate what they call casual exposure and to stop people from uh, taking their shoes off and airing out their feet in public and, you know, taking off their shirts if they're men and are uh, trying to cut down on the heat and including uh, stopping the Beijing bikini, which has been deemed uncivilised when i went up to people in beijing uh, there's a whole bunch of them who congregate outside my apartment complex on hot days playing cards and with their shirts rolled up uh they kind of looked a little embarrassed and you know said oh yeah that if they were told to cover up they would uh one of them pointed out to me he was wearing shoes and socks even if he did have his belly out so there are kind of degrees of um opinion about this I think that the authorities really have their work cut out for them if they want to try to uh, combat this or, you know, if they think that it's something antisocial that should be fixed, um, partly because it is such an ingrained part of the culture on a hot day in China, uh, but also previous efforts to try to clamp down on behavior that's deemed antisocial uh, have failed.
0: Anna Feifield is the Beijing bureau chief for the Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. This episode is sponsored by the Aquarius Project podcast from the Adler Planetarium. When a meteor crashed in a great lake, these Chicago teenagers... Is this actually going to, like, go somewhere? ...joined forces with scientists...
3: I specialize in asteroids...
0: ...to find a way to hunt for space rocks...
3: ...the so-called small bodies of the solar system...
0: ...200 feet underwater.
1: It's not impossible. It's, there's not a 0% chance.
0: From the Adler Planetarium, the Aquarius Project podcast... Subscribe now, wherever you listen.